Well, it's great to be with you guys this morning. My name is Blake. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. We're going to continue walking through the Pentateuch, particularly Exodus through Deuteronomy, the law. And this morning we're going to be looking at what the law says about our jobs. So God's will for our work. You may not realize this, but the average American over the course of his or her life is going to spend 90,000 hours at work. It's a lot of hours. For some of you who like just started a job and maybe you don't really like it very much, that's a terrifying thought. 90,000 hours there. In contrast, even if you come to church every single Sunday of your entire life, you're only going to spend around 9,000 hours here. So to state the obvious, you're going to spend 10 times more of your life at work than at church. And yet the funny thing is we tend to assume that what God cares most about is this, our time at church. He cares about this more than our time at work, right? Because here we are talking about him, we're worshiping him, we're reading his book, we're praying to him. This is what God cares about, right? But why would he care about like meetings and sales calls and expense reports? Why would he care about your job as a salesman or a teacher or a doctor or an engineer? Well, I want to go ahead and just give you the big idea for this whole morning. I'm not going to make you work for it. I'm just going to give you my big idea so you can take it home with you. Here it is. Based on what we read in Exodus through Deuteronomy, it's absolutely clear. Your work matters to God as much as your church attendance. That's really clear from reading the law. When we read the law, what we discover is that for the Jews living thousands of years ago, they would not have had a distinction in their mind between the sacred part of life and the secular part of life. That that whole distinction would be completely foreign to them. The Jews understood that God cares as much about Monday as he does the Sabbath day. All days equally matter to God. He is Lord of all of them. He cares about all of them. And so they realized that God cared deeply about how they did their jobs. He wanted them to do their vocation with excellence for his glory. The Apostle Paul grabs hold of that Jewish idea and brings it forward into the New Testament in the book of Colossians chapter 3. He says, whatever you do, meaning your, your job, your vocation, your career, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. So notice what Paul's saying there at the end. When you go to work tomorrow, you are ultimately not working for your boss. You're working for God. Your time at work counts to God in the same way that your time here at church counts to God. It belongs to him. He cares very deeply about it. And so when we realize that, that God cares deeply about our work, our careers, what that means is that let's say that you are an engineer and you're a believer and you come ask me, how can I be a good follower of Jesus? I'm not going to just tell you, well, come to church on Sundays and maybe think about being in a Bible study. As good as those things are, they don't count more than your vocation. So I'm going to start by saying, well, First, be a great engineer, and then also come to church and and maybe think about joining a Bible study and all the other stuff. But the point is your vocation matters deeply to your spiritual walk. That's really important for students to understand. College students, I've I've talked to many of you over the last 16 years, and, and you've come and you've told me, 
that you have really begun to follow Jesus in college. Maybe for some of you, you found Jesus in college. You became a believer. For some of you, you were already believers, but you really became passionate about your walk with Christ in college. You want to give him all of your time. You want to follow him completely. And so you come tell me that you want your life to count for eternity. You want to do eternally significant things. So who cares about grades? And clearly it's not you. Because you're, you're doing like three Bible studies and volunteering at four charities, but you're failing calculus. And so I tell you, no, your studies matter to God. Why? Because college for you at this phase of your life, that is your job. That is why God has placed you in this town at this time. Your schooling is your vocation. It is your job. And God cares deeply about our jobs. And actually, your grades are eternally significant. Why? Because one day you're going to stand before Jesus And he's going to hold you accountable for how you used every gift he gave you. And college is a gift. So he'll hold you accountable for what you did with this incredible opportunity. Your studies matter to God. Your work matters to God. Now why? Why does God care so deeply about our career, about our vocations? Because God created us to work. God cares about our work because he made us to work. Actually, we can see that by going all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, before sin enters the picture, we are told, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man, that is Adam, whom he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So just to be clear, at this point in human history, there are no church services. There are no Bible studies, there are no mission trips, there are no service projects, but there is work. There is work from the very beginning because you were created to work. So notice Adam's job, cultivate the garden, keep the garden, cultivate means maximize its fruitfulness, like make it abundant. Keep it means to guard it from anything harmful. So in other words, the first human occupation is what? Gardener. That's what human beings were created to do, be gardeners just like our dad in heaven. The greatest gardener of all. God was the first gardener. He planted the Garden of Eden. He was the greatest gardener of all. And then he invited his kids to join him in that vocation. We were created to join with our Heavenly Father in his work of making the garden flourish. So God honors work. God loves work work. He created you for significant work. That idea gets pulled forward into the next book of the Bible. In the book of Exodus, we're told this about the craftsmen that created the tabernacle and all the implements of worship. God speaks about these craftsmen in Exodus 31. God says, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones. It says later, he that is God has filled them, these artisans, with skill to perform every work of an engraver, of a designer, of an embroiderer, in blue and in purple and scarlet material, and in fine linen and of a weaver, as performers of every work and makers of designs. Now what's interesting here is that when we think about the gifts of God in our lives, we tend to think about the spiritual ones, right? Like forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, those are all wonderful gifts from God. But we need to understand that's not all the gifts of God. 
Actually, God has also gifted you vocationally. That's what's going on here. Notice these craftsmen, these artisans have been given gifts by God that enable them to do their vocation, this skill, this talent, the creativity, the strength that they have for their job is a gift from God, just like this fruit of the spirit is a gift from God. And so just to be really clear, what we're saying is that the carpenter's fine attention to detail, that's actually a gift from God. And the metal worker's strength to be able to hammer out metal into artistic design, that's a gift from God. And a doctor's ability to diagnose disease, that is a gift from God. God has gifted us vocationally because he cares so much about our work. He created human beings to work. In fact, part of being fully human is having significant work to do over the course of your life. That belief is actually what's behind one of the most beautiful ministries here at Grace Bible Church. It's called the B Community, and I want to introduce it to you through this short video. The B Community is a God-centered vocational program for adults with disabilities, a place of belonging, meaningful work, and lifelong learning. As many as 80% of adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities are unemployed nationwide. Our artisans skillfully craft bee products by hand, and every beautiful, quality-crafted product is sold in local markets. Every one of us is made in the image of God. We have dignity, worth, and the divine design to work meaningfully and contribute to society. The Bee Community creates a space for walls to come down between people with and without disabilities to enter into authentic relationships. People of all abilities and talents can use their gifting for the glory of God and the good of others, and we would love for you to contribute your time and talents to our mission. Learn more and apply at thebeecommunity.com slash volunteer. We believe that God created all human beings for significant work, and that includes adults with disabilities. And so the B community was founded to provide a place for adults with disabilities to do significant work in a Christ-centered community. If you'd like to get involved with the B community, this is a beautiful, wonderful work. Here's the information. So you'll notice an email address, volunteer at thebcommunity.com, and in their website, thebcommunity.com. Uh, It would really help them for uh, donations to come in to support their ongoing work, as well as as people to give time. So you can volunteer and work alongside the artisans in their craft, or you can help with community relations or fundraising or communications, lots of different volunteer opportunities to participate in this incredible ministry. We believe that God created all human beings for work. That's why he cares so much about our work, our jobs. And so now we want to move to specific commands God has given for specific jobs. So we're going to spend some time looking at what the law says to specific kind of vocational categories, like types of jobs. Now, right off the bat, I need to remind you of something we said multiple times so far this fall. We in the church age are no longer under the law. 
When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled the entire Mosaic law and set it aside. So we're no longer required to obey all the detailed commands of the law. However, there are timeless principles embedded in each of these commands and those still apply to us. God doesn't change, and so his values and priorities for our work that are embedded in these commands, those still apply to us. They're still true for us. And so how tomorrow, when you go to your job, are you going to take these timeless principles and apply them in your work? What are the specific things you must do? My answer is, I don't know. Why do I not know? Because we live in the age of the Spirit, not the age of the law. In the age of the law, God told everyone exactly what to do. A long list of all the details, and everyone was required to do all that same list. But we don't live in the age of the law. We live in the age of the Spirit, and that's not how the Spirit works. Instead, the Spirit guides each of us individually to see how we can uniquely apply these principles in our vocation, in our job. So I can't give you specifics this morning, and that's going to really frustrate some of you. You want the checklist. I can't give you that. Instead, what I can do is give you the timeless principles and challenge you to to humbly go before the Lord and ask him to show you personally how to apply these principles in your work. So let's jump right in. I'm going to give you timeless principles for three basic types of jobs. So three vocational categories. It's not going to cover everyone. I don't have time to cover everyone. Brian said I have to end on time. So we're just going to do these three big ones that will cover most of the people in the room. So let's jump right in. Our first vocational category is actually a type of job we've already started to talk about. That's the artists and craftsmen in the room. So it's men and women who create things. We're talking about artists, carpenters, fabricators, graphic designers, website creators, musicians, people who create new things based on the passages that we have read, both in Genesis 2 and then particularly in the book of Exodus. The first thing that you need to know is that you are doing something wonderful when you create. When when you create... You are actually joining in the work of your heavenly father, who's the greatest creator ever. If you think about God, he's the greatest content creator. He's the greatest craftsman. He's the greatest artist who has ever lived. You are being like your heavenly father when you use your gifts to create. It's beautiful. It's lovely to God. So when you use your talents as artists and craftsmen, what God wants you to remember, your timeless principle to guide your vocation, is you are to remember that your skills and creativity come from God, not you. Your skills and creativity, your talents, they are a gift from God. You didn't create them. You didn't make yourself talented. The result is there's no place for pride in your craft, and that is very countercultural. Because in our culture, it tends to be these incredible artists, craftsmen, musicians who we praise and celebrate and we lift them high and they're so famous. And God says, no, that's not what I want for you. Instead, what God wants us to do is humbly say, whatever abilities I have, whatever talents, whatever creativity, it's all a gift from God and it's all for his glory. So you use your talents to glorify God, particularly by blessing other people. You were given these creative abilities so that you could bless the world. So let me give you an example of what this might look like. A number of years ago, we had a woman working here on staff named Emily Mills as our graphic designer. Phenomenally talented woman. 
She moved up to Nashville a number of years ago. I still follow her because she's so creative and I love how she's used her gifts that God has given her. Emily has become a nationally recognized sketch artist. And so she is paid to attend like secular conferences or religious conferences. And as the speaker is talking, she's creating art. So she's basically tracing the flow of thought visually for that conference. The idea being is that when participants leave, they get a copy of her art to take with them so they can remember what they've learned and apply it and and challenge it. I mean, what a beautiful thing. Can you imagine if every time you came to church, we gave you art to take with you? To remember what you've learned, to apply it and inspire you? It's beautiful how God has led her to use her gifts to bless other people. So artists and craftsmen, whether you're creating things that are, that are, that are Christian or, or purely secular, whatever it might be, use your gifts humbly to bless others and you'll glorify God. Okay, so that's God's direction in your vocation. Second vocational group, engineers, architects, and builders. This is my people. So before I was a pastor, I was an engineer, actually. And so we're talking about those people who design the things that people use. Houses, roads, vehicles, appliances, devices, whatever it might be. You design stuff that people use. Our guiding verse is Deuteronomy 22.8, and it's a little bit weird. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. What is going on there? Well, for the non-architects and non-home builders in the room, here is a parapet. It's the little half wall that goes around the perimeter of a flat roof on an ancient building. And the reason that the Israelites were required to create parapets on their houses was, you notice the staircase on the side of that house? Their roof was a room of the house. They used it all the time. So the family would spend a lot of time up on the roof, go up those stairs. And you can imagine if the whole family's up there, that includes the kids. And kids run around and don't tend to pay attention to what's happening around them. The kid could fall to his harm or to his death. And so home builders and architects in Israel were required to go to the extra effort and extra cost of always building parapets around their houses. Now, what is the timeless principle? It's simply this. As engineers, architects, and builders, we are required by God to prioritize human life and safety over profit. It would have been cheaper to build houses without parapets. God says it doesn't matter. Humans are made in my image. Humans are valuable to God. And so you had to sacrifice profit for the sake of safety. So it is today. For engineers, architects, and builders, we are required to go the extra mile beyond any regulations to make sure we prioritize human safety and life, even at the expense of profit. I'll give you an example of this from my own life when I was an engineer. So I graduated from A&M Mechanical Engineering, class of 98, and I went and worked at a company, uh, and I was tasked to convert a transit bus, like you'd see on our roads, to electric power. And in the course of doing that work, I discovered a design flaw with the brakes. And if, if the brakes were operated in a certain way, it could cause a serious accident. And so I talked to my, to my boss, bosses, I had multiple bosses at the time, I said, this is a big deal. And they said, get back to work. Because they were under a tight budget and tight schedule. They didn't have time to mess with that. So they sent me back to my desk. I'm a young guy. What do I know? Well, ultimately, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I don't get to do something that could risk human life. It doesn't matter what the cost will be to me or my career. And so I wrote a letter 
about the design flaw and sent it to the owners of the company, and that didn't reflect well on me. That cost me at that job, but you have to do that. Because God said you've got to be willing to sacrifice profit and even sacrifice your own job for the sake of human life and safety because people matter deeply to God. So to the engineers, architects, and builders in the room, this will, this will make sense to you. You've probably been in this class before. Please don't do something by which you become the case study of what not to do in your profession. Please be willing to sacrifice profit or even your own job for the sake of prioritizing human life and safety. That's our direction from God. All right, third vocational category for us to look at. The executives, owners, bankers, and investors in the room. You actually get by far the most laws in scripture because you get to call the shots most of the time. And so God has more to say to you than anyone else. That's kind of a biblical principle. With great power comes great responsibility. So God has many principles for you. I'm going to give you kind of five of the big ones. Five timeless principles for the executives, owners, bankers, and investors in the room. Principle number one for you, take care of your employees. So here's kind of the guiding verse from Deuteronomy 24. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he's poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. The first thing to notice there is that we're talking about salaries and wage policies and yet Moses uses the word sin, which means how you set salaries is a moral issue. So in their context, it was about how quickly you pay your employees because most laborers in the ancient world, their families lived day to day, meaning for them to have food tomorrow, they had to be paid today. So employers weren't allowed ever to withhold payment. You had to pay that day. We live in a different economic context. Most of us are paid every other week, and that's fine. That's not really what it's about. The timeless principle that God has for us here is that uh, if you are a business owner or an employer, God expects us to set salaries and payroll policies with an eye to what our employees need to take care of themselves and their families. Now, that, that doesn't mean that you can't have entry-level positions or an entry-level wage that someone is working through. What it means is that if your only thought when you set wages is what is the absolute least I can pay someone to get this done, that's not okay with God. When you set wages and wage policies, you must keep your eyes focused on what is best for my employees. What takes care of them and helps them. God expects that of us. Now, will that cost you more in the end? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, God took these laws and he designed them into the human heart. And so when you take care of your employees, the statistics are quite clear. Employers who sacrificially take care of their employees tend to get what? The best employees who tend to do the best work for them. So it really can pay off well in the end. The point is, are you willing to sacrifice short-term gain or short-term cost-cutting for the sake of looking out for the best for your employees long-term? As business owners, we're required to keep an eye on what's best for our employees as we set salaries and wage policies. Second principle to guide executives, owners, bankers, and investors. Tell the truth. To customers, partners, regulators, and competitors, always, in all situations, Deuteronomy 19.14, do not move your neighbor's boundary stone set up by your predecessors and the inheritance you receive in the land, Lord your God, is giving you to possess. 
okay, what's going on here? Um, remember, in the ancient world, uh, they don't have survey tools. They certainly don't have GPS. So you would mark the, the boundary between plots of land with big, heavy stones. Now, they're heavy, but if you were a big, strapping guy, you could probably move that stone. And so if your neighbor goes off on a trip, what's to keep you from you know, just picking it up, move it a few feet over, drop it down? Maybe you won't notice. Next year he goes on a trip again, pick it up, move it over, drop it down, won't notice. Your land will gradually grow over the years. God says that's never okay. You may never lie or deceive or take advantage of someone else. Here's another verse, and this one is funny. Have you ever wondered how much of my life does God care about? Like to what detail does he care? Leviticus 19, do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. Use honest scales and honest weights. So this is not about wicked tape measures. What this is about is always telling the truth. And whatever business you do, we are not allowed ever to deceive or to lie or to exaggerate or to um, manipulate. We must always operate with integrity and honesty in absolutely everything that we do. That's absolutely required of us. Now, again, is that going to cost your business more in the end? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, Enron was pretty deceptive, and look at how well that worked out for him. No matter what the cost, we as as Christian business owners, managers, bankers, investors, we must always operate with absolute integrity and honesty. We should be examples of that to the rest of our industry. So that's the second principle. Third principle for the executives, owners, bankers, and investors in the room, actively help the poor with your business. Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord, your God. So what's going on here? Well, typically when we think about like Israelite business owners or wealthy Israelites, it was measured in land. That's, that's, they were an agrarian economy. So it's about you going and harvesting your land or your vineyard. And what God is saying is you're required to not harvest all of it. You never are allowed to harvest 100%. You've you got to leave the edges, the margins. Why? So when the poor come through the land, they have something to eat to survive. So that was expected of the Israelites. The Israelites who did that well were praised by God. So think of the book of Ruth. One of the heroes in that book is a guy named Boaz. God praises Boaz specifically because he left wide margins in his fields for the poor. And he had his workers go chop down the wheat so the poor could just pick it up and take it with him. He was a generous guy with his business. Now, how does that apply today? Well, the the poor aren't out wandering the fields. What do you commanded to do well here's here's the idea the the timeless principle god expects that you will use your business or your asset to care for the poor in other words it's not okay to only be generous in your private finances if you own or control a business or an investment god expects you to use part of it to lift up people living in poverty to help them out so I want to give you some some examples of this. These aren't meant to be laws again. You don't have to go do this. These are just beautiful examples to inspire you. So what are some ways in which Christian business owners or investors are applying this principle today? A couple examples I've seen. Number one, land and building developers who leave some percentage of apartments or lots for HUD voucher families. 
So you're building an apartment building or you're developing a neighborhood and you take some percentage, it doesn't mean all of it, but it means a couple apartments, a couple lots, and you set them aside for HUD voucher families. So they're on government assistance. You know they're not going to pay the going rate. You're going to lose money on that. You know that they're going to be harder clients typically. Yeah, you know that. You're going to make that sacrifice. You're going to sacrifice the margins of your business to lift up and care for poor families. That's beautiful. God loves that when that happens. I'll give you a second example. Businesses that participate in our Youth Impact Summer Work Initiative. So Youth Impact is our ministry here at the church that cares for under-resourced kids, that, that blesses and, and raises up and mentors at-risk kids in our community. And over the years, they've been around for like 25 years now, over the years they've found that one of the big things that these kids need once they get to high school is job experience. They need job experience and skills, but they don't, they don't have those skills yet. So businesses won't hire them yet, and that's the problem. And so Youth Impact asked some businesses in our community to sacrifice and hire one of these kids who doesn't have the skills you're looking for yet. They don't have the experience you're looking for yet, but you're going to hire them and pay them and train them. You're going to invest in them. Yes, that costs you, but you're going to raise up that kid. Now that kid has skills. That kid has experiences, has a resume. Now that kid can get a job later on and grow to financial security. That's a beautiful thing that those businesses right here in our town have done to lift up children coming out of poverty. Amazing thing that they're doing. All right, that's Leviticus 19 in action today. All right, fourth principle for the executives, owners, bankers, investors, managers in the room. Share your wealth with the less fortunate. Let's turn to Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25. Uh, This one's going to be a little shocking. This one's pretty radical. I don't know exactly how to apply this today. It's hard to imagine how this would work in our economy. Um, But it is beautiful. And so we're going to read it together. It's absolutely a beautiful thing that God had Israel do. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 10. You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you, shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale, moreover, to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the Jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is the number of crops he is selling to you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Skip down to verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Jump down to verse 28. But if he, that is a poor Israelite, has not found sufficient means to get it back, his land, back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchaser until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert, that he may return to his property." So this is the command of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was every 50th year in Israel. So here's what was happening. The Israelites, when God delivered them out of Egypt and brought them to the promised land, God divided up the promised land into parcels of land. And each family got a parcel of land directly from God. 
Now, it's possible, though, that over time, a particular family might fall on hard times. Maybe a sickness in the family, maybe a bad crop, maybe some tragedy, and and they're in trouble, and, and they need money just for food, and so they would sell their land to someone else. A person would come and take their land and, and, and give them the money that they needed. Well, the good news was, whatever amount of time it was till the year of Jubilee, that was the maximum amount of time that land could be owned by that other person. Once the next year of Jubilee hits, that family gets their land back for free. For zero cost, all land reverts to ancestral heritage. So if you think about it, it means every 50 years, God hits reset in the nation of Israel. Every family gets their ancestral land back. The result of that is that in ancient Israel, when they obeyed the year of Jubilee command, there was no such thing as generational poverty. Because every 50 years, God hits reset. Every 50 years, a family gets land back. On the flip side, when they were obeying the year of Jubilee, there was also no such thing as massive inherited wealth in Israel. It wasn't possible. So, How do we apply that today? I have no idea. I am definitely not advocating for a particular political or economic solution. What I am saying is that ultimately this is about our hearts as followers of Jesus. If we possess lots of wealth or lots of land or a big business, God wants us to understand it's not ours. Your land is not your land. Your money is not your money. Your house is not your house. Your business is not your business. God said it explicitly. It's mine. It belongs to me. And so God expects us, just like the Israelites were expected, he expects that we'll recognize that our wealth, our land, our possessions, our inheritance, that it all belongs to God. It's loaned to us for a short period of time, and we're expected to use it to lift up the poor. It's a tool designed to lift up poor families out of poverty and help them get back on their feet. So that's God's expectation for us, that we will use our wealth, our assets, our inheritance to lift up others, that will recognize it doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God, that will realize that with great wealth comes great responsibility to care for the poor and lift them up. So let me give you an example of this, an amazing story a few weeks ago in my life. Um, I, I run a charity here in town called On Ramp. We give reliable vehicles to families in need. And so a few weeks ago, I had the chance to interview a woman in need of a vehicle with her sponsors. And so we met at a coffee shop and we, we got to know her a little bit. And, and this woman, she's a mom with seven kids and she works a full-time job and every possible hour of overtime. And yet after she pays for rent, food, and health care, there's no money left for a reliable vehicle. And in this town, if you don't have a reliable vehicle, you'll lose your job and then you'll lose your house and then you'll lose your kids. You'll lose everything. So she was forced to rely on Uber, and that's costing her $150 a week. When you earn a minimum wage, there's nothing left. And so she was a a perfect client, exactly the kind of client we're looking for. We want to get her a vehicle. The problem is, with her and seven kids, that's a big vehicle. And so I was just honest with it. It, You're looking for like a seven-passenger, eight-passenger vehicle. That costs on-ramp, on average, $8,000. That's going to cost me a lot. That's going to take a long time 
to raise that money. And, and we need God's help. So let's pray. So right in the middle of, of the coffee shop, we prayed out loud that God would work a miracle, that he would somehow provide the $8,000 needed for us to get this woman and her kids reliable SUV. And, and we said, amen. And one of the sponsors took her home because she didn't have a vehicle to get to the coffee shop. And the other sponsor stayed. And we talked. We debriefed a little bit. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, a young college girl comes up. And she had been studying a couple of tables over and she said, I'm sorry, I, I couldn't help but overhear. And, and I heard that star, story and it, and it stirred my heart. And I, I want to give to help this woman. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, what a beautiful thing for this college student to do. Maybe she can give us 20 or 30 bucks to, to get a little further down the road. She says, no, no. I, you see, I, I was just given an inheritance. My family sold some land. And an inheritance came to me, and I've been praying for an opportunity to tithe of my inheritance that God would show me who to give it to, and I think it's you guys, and I want to give you a check today for $8,000. So, that was incredible. (laughs) Young college student paid for an entire reliable SUV for this mom and her kids, and that, folks, is what Leviticus 25 looks like today. She recognized that this inheritance is not mine, it is a tool. To use to lift up families in poverty, get them back on their feet, and show them the radical love of Jesus Christ. So, beautiful opportunity. Share your wealth with the less fortunate. Last, fifth principle for the executives, owners, bankers, and investors in the room. Lend your money graciously. Leviticus 25 tells us, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident, so he can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at profit. So in ancient Israel, if someone was in need, you had to give them money and not charge interest. As best we can tell, that particular detailed command has been set aside. As best I can tell, it is okay to loan money at interest, but there is a guiding principle here, a timeless principle for Christians. We must not ever charge oppressive interest. We must not ever trap people in debt, and we must never take advantage of the poor. And that's a really big deal in our country that particularly affects the poor who have nowhere else to turn for the necessities of life. So I want to give a couple examples. Um, This might make some of you uncomfortable, but I'm just going to go straight after it. So first example of something where people today are angering God, payday and title loans. In many, if not most cases, these are examples of people taking advantage of the poor for profit. Now, there may be some exceptions, some companies that are really trying to lift up the poor. God bless them. I I have not seen that. All the ones that I'm familiar with are businesses that are basically trying to make profit off of keeping poor people in debt. And it's awful. And if, if you weren't aware of this, in America today, the average annual percentage rate of interest on a payday loan is 400%. That is straight up wickedness. Just because a poor, desperate person will say yes to the loan you're offering does not make it morally okay to offer it. It's never okay. I'll give you a second example. Interviewed a client for OnRamp not too long ago who was desperately trying to buy a car so she could keep going to work. Because again, without a car in this town, you're trapped. You're going to lose everything. And so she had succeeded in saving up $1,000, which sounds like a lot of money. It's not. Not for a reliable car. 
Unfortunately, at $1,000, the dealerships, that's not the price point they operate on. So you can't go there. So she looked all around town. She found only one place that would do business with her, and it was super shady. A salesman comes out, and he tries to sell her a car with 300,000 miles on it for $10,000. Unless it's a Ferrari. That's nuts. It's crazy. So he says, but I know you can't afford that. But here's the deal. I'll give you this car right now if... You will give me the $1,000 you've saved up and then come back in two weeks and give me $750 after you've gotten your paycheck and then come back two weeks after that once you get your next paycheck and give me $750 and just do the math. That's $1,500 a month for a car with 300,000 miles on it. If I wasn't a Christian, I'd want to burn that place to the ground. That is straight up evil what he's doing. And yet there are so many crooks in this town taking advantage of the poor for profit. This is an opportunity for us as followers of Jesus to stand in the gap and offer loans at at no interest or very low interest to families who are in poverty, who have nowhere else to turn for the necessities of life. Let me give you a couple really beautiful examples of how God's people are standing in this gap and helping impoverished families through low interest or no interest loans. The first is ministries and churches that are offering microloans. I know of of a number of those, not just in our community, but around the world. There's a beautiful one I read about this week. It's by Children's Relief International working in Ghana. They're giving out like no interest microloans to women coming out of abuse, horrific abuse, to help those women start businesses so that they can then support themselves and their kids. What a beautiful ministry. They do it all in the name of Jesus. It's like that's how they present the gospel. Here's the gospel and here's some money to help you get back on your feet. Wonderful thing. So you can offer microloans at little or no interest. Uh, second example of this principle at work, a number of churches in our country have done a beautiful thing recently. I was just reading about one in Dallas a couple weeks ago. Churches that have banded together to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay off medical debt for families in need. That, what an amazing gift. What an amazing ministry. Because all of a sudden those families can breathe again. They can survive again. They have resources again. They have hope again. God's people can stand in this gap and help the poor who have nowhere else to turn for the necessities of life. So, five principles for the executives, owners, bankers, and investors in the room. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You hear these things and the thought that comes to your mind, which is totally fine for the thought, it's totally reasonable that you would think this. You hear these principles and you think to yourself, Blake, that sounds nice, but it's just not realistic. That is way too costly. That's way too complicated. My business will fail if I do the things you're saying. Here's the thing that you got to understand. That is exactly what the Israelites said to God. They told him the exact same thing. God, this is too costly. This is too complicated. This isn't realistic. And so for most of the Old Testament, the Israelites took advantage of their employees. They turned a blind eye to the poor and they disobeyed the law of Jubilee. And so God kicked them off his land. A big part of the reason for the exile when God disciplined his people and kicked them off the land is that they put profit over obedience. And God said, no, that's not okay. So what we need to understand, obeying God in our jobs, in our professions, at our careers or with our businesses, it is costly. Yes, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. Obedience is always costly, but it's worth it. It's worth it in this life and the next life. It is always worth obeying God. That's what the Old Testament proves. Disobedience never pays off in the end. Be willing to make whatever sacrifices God calls you to make now to obey. And so let's get very personal. 
for you as you think about your job, your career, your business, your investments, what comes first to you? Your profit or your obedience? Now let's be clear, there is nothing inherently wrong with profit so long as profit stays second. As long as obedience comes first in your life and profit's okay, but you've got to be willing to sacrifice profit for the sake of obedience. Now to do that, you look at that and you say, well, ultimately that's an issue of faith, right? That's an issue of trust. Are you willing to trust God even when it doesn't seem to make economic sense? That's what God is calling you to do. To say, even though I don't understand the economics of this, I don't understand how to work this out, it seems like such a big cost, will you say, God, I will trust you. I will lay the complexities, I will lay the cost, I will lay the pain, I will lay the fear at your feet, and I will simply trust and obey. That's what God wants for you. If you say that you obey and honor God, and yet you don't honor him at work, then you don't honor him. It's not enough to come to church on Sundays. God is a Sunday to Sunday kind of God. He cares about all of the week. So if you want to honor God, you have to honor him at work, even when it's costly. And ultimately, this is all about Jesus. I want you to think about this. As the men go back to prepare communion, I want you to think about why are we talking about these rules? Why are we talking about these principles? Why are we getting so uncomfortable this morning? Ultimately, it's all about Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, you are here on earth to share with people the radical love of Jesus, right? Talk about that all the time. That is our purpose, to share in word and deed the radical love of Jesus with the world. Well, guess where the world's not? Here. They're not with you on Sunday morning. You you can't share with them the radical love of Jesus here. Where can you share with them the radical love of Jesus? At work. You got 90,000 hours over the course of your life. That is prime time to show how radically loving Jesus is to this world. But the only way to show the radical love and grace of Jesus is by being radically loving yourself. And it's always costly to be radically loving. It's always hard. It's always painful. And so when you go to your job or your career and you live in such a way where you demonstrate to your coworkers, you are willing to lose your job, you're willing to risk your career, you're willing to risk your business, you're willing to risk your investments to bless others and glorify God, that shows them that Jesus is real. You've got to live a radical life if you're going to show people that Jesus is real. And so we get to celebrate communion this morning. It's a reminder... That whatever cost we have to pay at work, it's nothing compared to the cost Jesus paid for us. When he died on the cross, he gave his all so that we could be forgiven of all. That is the greatest cost ever paid. And that motivates us and inspires us to say, I'm willing to risk my job, my career, my business because Jesus is worth it. Jesus, my Savior, is worth that kind of trust, that kind of radical, costly obedience because I want people to know how great he is. So as the men pass communion, what I'm going to ask you to do during this time is to say thank you to Jesus. And I'm going to challenge you during this time to surrender your life completely to Jesus, including your job, your career, your business, and your investments. Lay it all at his feet and tell him, Jesus, I'm willing for you to do whatever, whatever you want, whatever it costs me. You have it all because you are worthy. Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant 
in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we remember this morning that you paid the ultimate cost for us. That that you lived a perfect, sacrificial servant life. Then you died a painful, difficult death. And then you rose from the dead and you did it all for us so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life as a gift. You paid the cost that we couldn't pay. You paid our debt so that we could be forgiven and have life. We thank you for that, Jesus. And Lord Jesus, as we look at that cost that you paid, may it inspire us and help us to be willing to to pay the cost of obedience this week. As we go to work, as we do our jobs and our careers and run our businesses and handle our investments, we pray, Jesus, help us to remember that it all belongs to you. Help us to obey you even when it doesn't seem to make economic sense. Help us to to follow you and trust you even when we don't know what the results are going to be. I pray that you would make us radically obedient people and that through that, you might call many people to yourself. We pray, Lord, that that as we interact in this community on a, on a day-to-day basis at work and our careers and our jobs and our studies, Lord, we pray that people might see radical, sacrificial, costly love from us. That they might look at us and say, I don't understand what that person is doing. It's crazy. I pray that they would see that and that it would draw them to you. That they would want to know our God who is so gracious and so kind through the grace and kindness that we give. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would take all of our lives. We lay our jobs and careers, our businesses and investments at your feet. May they all glorify you because you are worthy, Jesus. You are worthy of everything we have and everything we can give. We praise and exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have a great and obedient week.